0: Our scripture reading uh, this morning is from Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 6 to 31. Uh, Please pray with me. Father, open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to your word this morning. Uh, In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashiv had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the, ma- with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and singers responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, Why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah had brought the, grain, the tithes of grain, new wine, and oil into the storerooms. I put Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms, and made Hanan son of Zakur, the son of Metaniah, their assistant, because these men were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their brothers. Remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services." In those days I saw men in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys, together with the wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. Men from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your forefathers do the same things so that our God brought all this calamity upon us and upon this city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, Why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this, O my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, or the language of one of the other peoples, and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take on an oath in God's name and said, You are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves." Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations there was no king like him. He was loved by, by his God, and God made him king over all Israel, but even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Jehoiada, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanbalat, the Horonite. And I drove him away from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to his own task. I also made provision for the contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. Remember me with favor, O oh my God. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks. to God.
1: If you have been following along with us, you know we are doing a series in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, and we come to the last chapter of the book of Nehemiah. We're at the end of the series, and first of all, we looked at the individual perspective of Ezra and his faithfulness, his restoration, his refreshing, his renewing as he went about restoring the temple, and then we looked at Nehemiah's faithfulness, his covenant renewal, his restoration, his refreshment, his renewal as he went about building the wall. And then we go to the second part of the book of Nehemiah where we start to look at the covenant renewal of the community of God. Kyle preached to us on chapter 8 where he looked at our need or the people's need to be immersed in special revelation in scripture. And then last week through chapters 9 and 10 we unpacked the response to being exposed to the revelation of Holy Scripture. And that was, we saw that, a remember when I got up here and I said, let me read this to you, and I emphasized you, 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 as the people were talking to God about God's faithfulness and God's salvific work and God's character, and we saw the beauty of God manifest in his character and his work. And we looked at how once you saw the beauty of God that led to a place of trust in his goodness. Trust in the character and the saving work of God, which, when you get to that place of trust in God's beauty, in his faithfulness, uh, in his saving work, grace and law are no longer at odds. Grace is costly, but it's given freely, because he loves us and he wants us. Grace is needed because we're wretched sinners saved by grace, but it is given because he loves us and he wants us. The law then is not oppressive, but beautiful. We look at the law and we say, I trust God. This law is given to me because he wants me to thrive. He wants me to do well. This is God's love language, seeing me thrive by being obedient to his law he delights in us it is given because we are greatly loved children of God and he is delighting in us it is not oppressive because it's beautiful it's for our benefit and our thriving having been shown good's goodness the people of God in Nehemiah and we can trust him enough to obey him we're free in our obedience grace and law therefore are relational they're how we expect our to They're not transactional. God loves us enough to chase us down and make us his own. And we express our love by trusting him, which means we feel safe to be faithful and obedient. And this is a happy ending. We really should have stopped the book here. You, God, are totally trustworthy, and we are totally dependent. We got it. End of story. Let's keep moving forward. And in fact, in chapters 11 and 12, which we're not reading, that's exactly what happened. They took a big census, and they worked out, wrote down all the people who were part of the people of God. And they said, wow, look at this work that God has done. And then they had this huge dedication service. They got two choirs. One walked on one side of the wall. One walked on the other side. They met at the temple. They had a great celebratory uh feast and worship encounter and in fact in verse 43 of chapter 12 it's described as being so loud that it could be heard far away from jerusalem great joy we should have finished the series there a happy ending our heroes nehemiah and ezra had succeeded The temple and the walls and the people, all restored, all refreshed, all renewed. Then we get to chapter 13, which we read today. One of the great anticlimaxes in Scripture. How quickly things turn bad. How quickly things unravel. Today we're going to look at, we're quickly going to review the failure points and hint up front it's everywhere we're going to quickly evaluate nehemiah's corrective action but uh, contrasting and comparing it to the way they were turned around or renewed or refreshed in chapters 8 9 and 10 through scripture where they saw the beauty the work the faithfulness the character of god and responded relationally in obedience because they trusted him and then we're going to conclude by addressing this yo-yoing problem. Faithful this week, unfaithful the next. Faithful this week, unfaithful the next. So quickly, a review of the failure points, a look at Nehemiah's corrective action, comparing this with what we saw in chapters 8, 9, and 10, and then a look at how we deal with the spiritual yo-yoing problem. So the failure points, I said last week when we were looking at their commitment they listed some areas where they were particularly struggling in, and they said, look, we've seen how faithful you are, God. We've seen what a wonderful character you, you have. We've seen how you've worked uh, to salvifically through us so many times, and we trust you. We love you. And in these areas, we weren't depending on you, and we're going to commit ourselves to you, particularly in those areas, because we trust you and we love you. And, of course, those are the exact areas that they fail in here the revival in a sense is reversed the covenant renewal regenerates degenerates so let's look at the areas and again i want to make the point that the specific areas which they looked at were really just representative of their struggles the point we should see is how comprehensive they are they cover the temple or church life they cover the sabbath or business life and they cover family life as well the temple church life, verses 7 to verses 10. Tobiah, who's been a thorn in the side of Nehemiah and the building of the wall and the, t- the temple uh, through the whole series. He set out an assassination attempt on Nehemiah at one point. He tried to invade at another point. He's constantly tried to undermine this process. Tobiah, a thorn in the side of Israel and a thorn in the side of Nehemiah, is now living in the temple. He's moved in. He set up residence in the temple, and not just anywhere in the temple. He set up residence in the rooms which are used for the storage place of the tithes and offerings which are used to pay the Levites who run the temple. So there's no one giving money because there's no room to store the money, which means that the Levites have said, well, we've gotta make a living somehow. So they've gone off to the fields. Temple life has shut down effectively. The temple complex has turned into an apartment complex. The enemy of God is living in the house of God with the permission of the high priest of God. Abuse of money, of power, of politics in the church. Aren't we lucky that's not a problem that happens today? Sabbath or business life in verses 15 to 18. They were trading on the sabbath they were making and trading goods on the sabbath they were opening their markets to foreigners on the sabbath now you have to understand the heart issue that's going on here in the old testament when god takes all of humanity and from that carves out a small group of people with abraham to be the people of god to make into a people of god he gives them the covenant sign of circumcision now that sign of circumcision is now as we experience today in our service, uh, in the new covenant, is baptism. The Sabbath is actually the covenant sign of the Mosaic covenant. See, they were brought out of slavery, and the Sabbath represents the fact that they no longer have to work seven days a week in slavery. And so, coming out of that slavery, God gives them the Sabbath and says, Rest on the seventh day, spend that time reflecting on the fact that I have freed you, I have liberated you from your captives. It's a sign then that you can trust God, you can commit to God providing for you, that it's a time, it's a time set aside to say, I don't need to work 24-7, I don't need to be focused on accumulating in order to be, feel safe or secure financially, I can take the time to reflect on who you are, God, and what you have done for me. I can express my dependence on you. It's a relational heart activity that was so important both under the Mosaic Covenant and the heart attitude of that, that dependence, that recognition of that dependence, that carving a time, a rhythm, and a discipline for reflection on God's work, important to us today sabbath shows dependence on god it shows a commitment to a worship rhythm a commitment to rest and reflection to delight and play to and for the lord a recognition that workaholism financial fear the need for accumulation the loss of rhythm are not the way we should be going thank goodness this is not a problem today right Family life, verses 23 to 28, it's the intermarrying uh, with women from, from ashur and Ammon and uh, uh, the Ammonites and from the Moabites, and it's, the problem here is not a question of race. The problem here is that in that culture, it was the women that were bringing up the children. And in this case, what was happening was the women didn't even speak the language of of the Israelites and so they bring up the children learning foreign languages which again is fine but the problem is in learning those foreign languages they were learning to worship foreign gods so at best it was synchro- there was a synchronicity there you were worshipping both gods at worst these people were growing up in Israel worshipping the foreign gods of their mothers now We know this is not a race issue because in fact, in the genealogy of Christ, we see Ruth, who is the mother of Jesse, the father of David, in the line of Christ, and Ruth is a Moabite woman. The reason it's okay that Ruth is part of the line of King David and of the line of Jesus, the reason that there's nothing wrong with that marriage is when she comes in from Moab, And Naomi says to her, look, you're not really an Israelite. You should go back and live in Moab. She says, no, whoever your people are, they will be my people. Whoever your God is, he will be my God. And so you see there a conversion, a commitment, a reorientation and worship on Yahweh. And that means then that Ruth was a part of the covenant people. The problem here was not an ethnic problem it was a faith problem now to be fair there was a dearth of Hebrew women for them to marry you see when they returned from the exile it wasn't the established family man with his wife and his 12, 13 kids that picked up and moved back to Jerusalem it was primarily the young single people who were saying great opportunity let's go to Jerusalem and so it wasn't the women who needed to be married off that went back to, uh, primarily went back to Jerusalem, it was the young single men. Which meant there was hardly anyone to marry. And so out of a sense of desperation, they were going to the Moabites and the Ammonites and trying to find wives to marry. If you can't find an Israelite woman to marry, any good woman will do. If you can't find a Christian man or woman to marry, any good non-Christian man or woman will do. Luckily, this is not a problem in our culture today. Now, the point here is actually that their church life, their worship life, their community life is in decay. And it's in decay in the church, in the business, and the family. Their life is unsubmitted to Yahweh. It is self-focused. It is lacking in trust in God's provision. And the point we're supposed to get when we read this is, it's a comprehensive mess. They've lost the plot. Their lives are no longer oriented. They're no longer asking the question, how do I participate in this way in the kingdom of God? How do I participate in this area in the question of God? They're no longer looking to make Yahweh the Lord of every square inch of their lives. So what is Nehemiah's corrective action? Well, in this passage we see what's what's happened to give a bit of history. He spent 12 years as governor. He went back to Artaxerxes, the king, where he came from. And now he's returned again. He was probably back with Artaxerxes for about 15 years. And he's looking at a before and an after uh, picture. Great covenant renewal, total degeneration and collapse. Now in chapters 8, 9, and 10, Nehemiah, as the leader of the people, went through the scripture. Beauty, through the character and the saving work of God. Obedience as trust. We can trust this God and we can express our love through obedience process. In chapter 13, what happened to Nehemiah? No more Mr. Nice Guy. What's getting what's going on here? Is he getting grumpy? as he gets older. Now this is a narrative in the scripture. It is not therefore prescriptive. And we need to read through this and ask ourselves, is this right or is this wrong? What part of this is consistent with the broader picture that we find in scripture? So let's take each incident one at a time. First of all, that church life problem where the high priest had rented out the temple to the enemy of God's people and to Nehemiah, Uh, and uh, the Levites had disappeared, and temple life had basically shut down. So what does he do? He comes and he uses his authority to kick Tobiah out of the temple. Pick up your suitcases, get out. Your lease is up, leave. And he goes back in there and he prepares that spaces for the tithes, and he regathers the Levites, and he restores the temple to worship, and he reinstitutes the process of tithing to pay for that. He uses his authority to address the abuse of power by the high priest and his tenant. Now this is work that everyone should be doing. In your vows of membership, you say you will work for the peace and the purity of the church and it's your responsibility to challenge this sort of authority and abuse when you see it and i don't think we can say that nehemiah did anything wrong here he took on the primary authority using the authority that was given to him in ways that were consistent and fair so then we look at his response to the business life the sabbath issue in verses 18 to 32. he starts by warning them of god's wrath He locks the gates, he puts guards in place, and he threatens to arrest violators. Threats and and coercion to comply with God's law. If you don't obey God, you'll have to deal with him. And if you don't obey God, you'll have to deal with me too. In the church context, you can come down heavily. We can come down heavily. The church, the big capital C church, can come down heavily on some behaviors to prevent them from corrupting on others. Well, that's how we sometimes present it. We just, we can say, for example, churches, some churches ban drinking. Other churches uh, will investigate and make sure, examine finances to make sure people are tithing. Further churches will take attendance and rebuke people when they don't attend. So not getting drunk, tithing, gathering together for communal worship, are all faithful and good things. Now, true, Nehemiah's approach here is very different from 8, 9, and 10. It's not scripture revealing the beauty of God and we obey because we trust. This is watch out for the wrath of God and if the wrath of God isn't enough, watch out for the wrath of Nehemiah. Now, Even if this coercive behavior produces the behaviors that we want to see, it's beginning to set up the false dichotomy between law and grace, even for the obedient. You see, you're either a failure or you are self-righteous. Is faith here a relational response to beauty because we've suddenly realized who God is and how we can trust Him, or is faith here based on coercion and fear. The line is starting to blur. Let's look at the intermarriage issue and how Nehemiah dealt with that. This is in verses 25 through 25. First of all, he rebuked them, then he cursed them, then he beat them, then he pulled out their hair, and then he got around to threatening them with God's wrath. If you don't obey God, you'll need to deal with me. Oh, Oh, actually, and you also have to deal with God. I forgot that. If you don't obey God, you'll have to deal with me. And yes, also you'll have to deal with God, almost as an afterthought. Now, i got to tell you that pastors today, I've actually heard a sermon preached on this text where a pastor today was frustrated that he couldn't, and this is his exact words, I can't go OT, because I'll get in trouble with CNN. In other words, I can't beat people and pull out their hair to do what I want them to do, to be faithful to God, or else I'm going to end up on the national news. So this is not completely unique, I don't think, in today's context. Now, we're supposed to see this as too much. You know, even Ezra didn't pull out their hair, he pulled out his own hair in this context. And I'll ask Kyle as you come alongside people and encourage people as you want to point them to the Lord, do you pull out the manual as a pastor and you say, Oh, this is the time where I start beating people and pulling out their hair? <laughs> right. And I looked in our diaconate manual. How does our diaconate come alongside and care for? How do they bless and encourage people to love and serve the Lord? And first thing it says in the diaconate manual is, Get a good grip, pull hard, punch firmly. Of course, we don't think this is the right thing to do. And We're not supposed to make excuses for Nehemiah's behavior here. This is hyperbolic legalism, and it's in direct contrast to what we see in chapters 8, 9, and 10. Now, why has this happened? It'd be tempting to say, be tempting to go the simple route here and just say, oh, he's smugly self-righteous. Notice how he goes through this and says, remember me, God, remember me, God, remember me, God, after all of these little corrective actions. But I don't, it may be that, but I don't think that's what's going on there. I think this is the cry of the faithful who aren't seeing the fruit that they're hoping to see. And that frustration is, look, I've been faithful, God. R- remember me in my faithfulness even if this is all falling apart. It could be that he's consumed with his legacy what are people going to think about me nehemiah but i don't think that's the case here either i think he's a flawed hero desperate to see judah re- uh, renewed and revitalized he's just going expedient rather than pastoral now the diagnosis here remember last week I said, let's read through chapter 9 together. You, 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 you God, you God, your faithfulness, your self acts, your character. So many yous. That text is basically made up of you God of this, you God of that, you God of this. I won't do it again in this chapter, but the dominant word, the most occurring word in this chapter is the word I. Throughout chapter 13, the word I occurs 25 times, almost the same ratio as the word you talking about God appears in chapter 9. Nehemiah is looking to himself as an expedient solution rather than himself trusting in the beauty of God. And there's a great danger, a great danger of pastors and church leaders to move into this place. We just want to see people doing the right thing we forget to tell people how beautiful Christ is. So the reason that chapter 13 is in the book of Nehemiah is because it's supposed to stand. It's supposed to be a glaring contrast to chapters 8, 9, and 10. The revelation of God in Scripture, which reveals to us the beauty of God's character, the beauty of His salvific work, His deep love for us, The fact that we can trust him and we can express his love language back to him which is obedience because that obedience is actually a blessing to us we can trust him and so that contrast is supposed to be there not the expedient coercive manipulative fear-based non-relational transaction based interaction with God but that faithful response of recognizing who God is and trusting in that. And the second reason chapter 13 is here is it tells us the story of wandering faith is not over. We always, always repeatedly lose the beauty of God and resort to this false dichotomy between law and grace. The spiritual yo-yo problem. Today I'm faithful obedient, super cool Christian, tomorrow I'm a hot mess. So what's the conclusion? What's the solution to the spiritual yo-yo problem? Well, it begins by starting with the realization that we are a messy people and church is a messy place. That's just the bottom line truth. We are messy people and church is a messy place. This personal yo-yoing from faithful to unfaithful can be discouraging it can be spiritually depressing you can come down on yourself what is wrong with me watching others yo-yo from faithful to unfaithful is hard particularly if you have some of your own identity invested in whether they if whether they do that particularly if you love them particularly if you want to see them thrive it's very easy to want to beat them and pull out their hair and tell them how great god is This yo-yoing idea, however, is just that. It's an idea. It's our experience of our own faithfulness, or it's our judgment of others' faithfulness. But it's not God's experience, or God's judgment of others or of us. See, we are both always loved children and always wretched sinners. On our best days, and our worst days, we are both love children and wretched sinners. Now, we may think we are yo-yoing between faithful and unfaithful, between loved child and wretched sinner. That's our emotional experience. That's our judgment of other people's. But the diagnosis here is the I problem. See, we're defining ourselves by what we are or are not doing. We need the you are, you are beautiful your character and your saving work what we learn from our baptism what we saw this morning is that it is god's work not our work and we need to stop and rest and trust in that now there is a clue what went wrong for nehemiah as a pastor or a leader of the people and it's in verse six let me read it to you but while all this was going on i was not in jerusalem Now, this is not Nehemiah's fault. He had to go back. It is a big indictment of every other Christian leader that was in Jerusalem and should have been doing what uh, Nehemiah should have been doing. He was not able to journey with them. He was not able to do life on life with them. We need to journey with each other and give each other space to grow and see God's beauty. You see, covenant renewal isn't this one wonderful event that happens periodically. We have this great big party and then everything is okay. Covenant renewal is a daily ongoing process that comes when we constantly point one another, each other, to Christ. Where we journey with each other, both as loved children and wretched sinners, rather than judging ourselves or each other as either love children or wretched sinners. And that's what you need to take away from this series. Covenant renewal is not constantly trying to find the space between law and grace. Am I loved or am I wretched? It's to find peace with the reality that it is all God's work, and that we sit as wretched sinners and loved uh, loved children before Him. And that we had to come alongside each other daily in the process of covenant renewal, pointing each other as community to Christ. Again, I read the same verse, which I think sums this up in a New Testament context, from Ephesians 5, to finish this sermon. And this series. Be filled with the Spirit, Speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Covenant renewal. The place we want to be all the time. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this series. We thank you for this faithful, heroic character of Nehemiah and of Ezra. We thank you for the reminder that we too so easily move to expediency. We thank you that it is not the work of Nehemiah or us, whether we are leaders or not, that make the difference. It is your work, it is your faithfulness, it is your beauty which transforms, your spirit revealing you in scripture help us to be a people who practice the discipline of covenant renewal in community with each other help us take away this as the charge from this series we ask these things in jesus name amen